Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, this is Cameron Abadi, one of the co-hosts of the show. There is no new data point this week. We uh, instead will be re-airing one of the episodes from earlier this year, the one uh, you might have heard it, maybe not. The first segment is about inflation that struck us as still relevant for obvious reasons. The second segment is about pasta trains. Uh, this actually was one of the first ideas that Adam and I came up with when we were conceiving this show. So it's about pasta trains and what those pasta trains say about the EU. Otherwise, we will be off next week. And happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, all of that. But we will be back in your feed after that with new stuff. Maybe some familiar topics, obviously inflation, the pandemic is still around, but there's a French election coming up, midterms we'll be talking about, I'm sure, in the U.S. I can also promise you there is a segment on the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, the economics of the two rock bands <laughs> that come, that's coming soon, too. So anyway, we will leave it there, and uh, yeah, see you on the other side of the new year. Okay, bye-bye. Welcome to Ones and Twos, Foreign Policy's Economics Podcast. Every week we take two different data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's Deputy Editor, joining you from Berlin, Germany. With us, as always, from his studio in New York is Adam Twos, FP's Economics Columnist. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Good to be here. Okay, so later in the show, we're going to be talking about pasta trains and we'll tell you what they say about the european economy but first let's start with our news data point this week that number is five as in five percent that's the rate of inflation in the united states as calculated by the labor department for the month of september basically that means consumers are paying five percent more on average than they were a year ago for goods and services that's higher than the Federal Reserve's 2% inflation target. And that's started a lot of conversation. Today we're talking inflation. Prices are rising all across the country, and they're rising pretty quickly. Inflation rising 5% since last year as the economy recovers, the fastest pace in nearly 13 years. So is inflation really 5%? Is it transitory or persistent? Is this a new permanent condition? And... Is this level of inflation even a problem? Or is it maybe even a good thing? As usual, Adam, I want to start with a basic question. My recollection is that prices are set by the relationship between supply and demand. So if prices are going up, which side of that equation is responsible here? Is this a change in how much people are demanding or how much supply of stuff is available? Well, certainly supply is playing a major role here. And you, you see that best if you break this number down that we're talking about. When you talk about inflation, we normally mean the consumer price index, which is issued by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. 
the aim of the CPI is to give you a handle on the cost of living of an urban household. So it includes food and beverages, housing, apparel, transportation, medical care, education, communications, all of those things. And, and right now, what we're seeing are some pretty huge disparities between these different components of the CPI. And that's kind of telling us that things are out of kilter on the supply side. So if you look, for instance, at food for American households, it's rising by only 3% year on year right now, whereas restaurant meals are up 4.7%. And I think we know from sort of just general reporting that eateries are having a huge uh, problem getting hold of staff. But for real drama, you've got to look at the energy component. So whereas the prices for electricity generated within the US from your usual utility are up 5.2%, gasoline prices surged 42.7% year on year to August this year. Um, and that just drags the whole index up with it. That, that huge leap is largely an effect of prices having been so low last year due to the collapse in the world economy. I just want to quickly clarify, to the extent that there are all these supply disruptions, is this basically related to the pandemic? It sounds like it might be. Pandemic is key for sure, yeah, because it threw everything out of sync. It disrupted the flows of goods and then it produced this sudden restart, which was the only bit about this in a sense, which has been synced. And that, that disparity has done a lot of damage worldwide. Okay, so that's the supply side. It does seem like there are demand side issues maybe here as well. I mean, there have been several stimulus programs in the United States since the start of the pandemic. There are some big spending bills now in Congress that could pump even more money through the United States economy. The federal government has raised its minimum wage for government contracts. I mean, are all those factors also playing a role here? Certainly, yeah. I mean, one of the most intuitive ways of thinking about inflation is to say, you know, it's too much money chasing too few goods. And there's certainly more money in the system right now. But what's even more important is, in fact, that it's actually chasing the goods. So folks are actually out there trying to spend uh, the cash. Consumer spending grew at an annualized rate of 12% in the second quarter of 2021. That's April to June. The crucial thing to understand about these kind of numbers in the US is that American statisticians annualize growth rates. So it's not that it will actually grow 12% over the course of the whole year. But if the rate of growth in that second quarter were to continue over a year, hypothetically, it would add up to a 12% increase. Okay, so I get the argument for why this would be temporary or transitory, which it seems to be the word that people use when they're talking about inflation. I mean, we're talking about discrete causes that are rooted in the pandemic on the supply side and, and the demand side for what's triggering some of these issues. Those then presumably would eventually subside. But what's the argument for why this would be permanent or persistent? I mean, is it basically that there would be some kind of positive feedback loop so people are going to start expecting higher prices, so they start demanding higher wages, which leads to higher prices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, that's crucial because, I mean, if you take it very precisely, then you could insist that a process of price increases is only inflationary when it becomes permanent and self-sustaining. That That's the only moment when you can really sensibly talk about inflation. Otherwise, the market's just doing its job, right? If supply and demand are out of balance, then prices need to adjust up or down. And once they've adjusted, the process stops. And then the rate of change, which is what we're talking about when we talk about inflation, falls to zero. 
So the question really is, how might a process become self-sustaining? Well, if we go back to our demand and supply thing, you could continuously add new injections of cash. But there's frankly little prospect of that. The Biden administration is having a hard enough time trying to get the latest round of stimulus through. And in many cases, they're actually paid for through higher taxation. So we may actually in 2022 face a sort of negative shock from the government side. That's one of the things I think the Democrats are worrying about. And there's certainly not much sign of runaway private credit creation. So that's the demand side. If you look to the supply side, what would a continuous restriction of supply look like? You know, there's talk of energy wars, for instance, but we're not in a 1973 situation where OPEC is in the business of trying to you know, throttle the West. It's quite likely, really, that over the next couple of months, as oil prices pick up, output will pick up too. What we saw in the past, and I think this is what's really on people's minds, is in the 1970s in particular, a sort of institutionalized system where the expectation of inflation became institutionalized in what are called cost of living adjustments. And it was, in fact, with that process in mind that the CPI index was created in the first place 100 years ago to manage the surge of inflation after World War I and to give trade unions and employers some sort of basis on which to bargain and by 1976, as inflation surged again, you know, starting in the late 60s in the Vietnam War, so-called COLA clauses, so cost of living adjustment clauses, covered 61% of the American workforce. So that really did create a considerable flywheel effect in which price increases would trigger wage increases, which drove costs up, which could then tempt employers and producers to raise prices again. So though there's a lot of talk about a sort of return to 70s era inflationary conditions, I think it would be frankly astonishing if what resulted from all of this was a sustained 70s style wage push campaign. I think that's really belongs to the realm of fantasy right now. Okay, so this is partly about expectations. And you just gave, I think, a lot of plausible reasons not to expect this to continue to be a problem. But in this context, how are we supposed to understand the parade of people who've been coming out in public on TV saying this inflation really is persistent? I mean, by arguing that inflation is persistent, they're telling people to be worried. I mean, aren't they contributing to the problem? They're telling people to expect uh, a problem coming up. So should we see this as a kind of attempt to work the refs? I mean, is this trying to influence the Fed, which needs to really decide what to do about all this? Yeah, that's a, that's a great phrase. I'm going to steal that. The idea of them like being a, like a bunch of belligerent players giving the refs a hard time trying to intimidate that. I think that's spot on. In 2020, the Fed carried out a policy review and then announced that in future it would engage in what's called average inflation targeting. So it would aim not to stay below 2%, but at 2% on average. So that means they would allow overshooting as well as you know aiming for some undershooting. And then to compound the uncertainty, think about the timing here. They announced this August 2020, and then the vaccines arrive, the stimulus begins to kick in, the recovery takes off, then we hit the supply chain bottlenecks. So we have demand, supply, and the policy shift all happening at the same time. And that's when the politics get serious. So you see the ref kind of uncertain about the call, and so everyone piles in to pick up your, your great image. Yeah, you know, I should say I, I, I used to work as a referee for, for, for young girls basketball. And I can, 
I can confirm that working the reps works. I mean, I used to have parents. It's the tape, Cameron. It's the tape. What we want to see is footage. No, 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 no. That's uh, uh, I didn't last long. Uh, maybe because I was so uh, um, so so vulnerable to the to the intimidation from the crowd. But in any case, uh, I want to end with uh, another basic question, which is, why exactly is inflation a bad thing? I mean. I get that people don't like higher prices, but if it all gets worked out in the end that people eventually get more money in their paychecks, I mean, it gets harder to see the problem. I guess there's some friction of transition, but but that should eventually work out. So it seems like the limiting case that people usually cite is that the economy is overheating if under inflation. But I've never known what that metaphor means in practice. What does overheating actually even look like? Yeah, yeah, that's the thing about basic questions. They're often, they're often the best. Well, I mean, why is inflation a problem? I'll take right? the compliment. I mean, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take yeah. it. I'm standing up for the I reader mean, here uh, or the listener no, here. We need to. We need to ask. I mean, as you say, if it were universally expected and it was a smooth process of just adjusting ticket prices, it would be essentially painless. There might be kind of like a minimal extra cost of an administrative kind. It's what economists call shoe leather costs. Uh, but it'd be trivial fundamentally. But the thing is that that's not generally how serious inflations play out. They're driven by the sort of thing we're seeing, painful supply shocks, or once upon a time in the 70s, by distributional struggles, clashes between workers and employers, which result in strikes. And, and they're often reflections of politics that have gone out of control and governments that can't manage their budgets anymore. And so in a sense, you know, people fear inflation because they fear the causes of inflation, you know. You could, however, say, and again, there's two sides to this argument. I mean, if you are in a society, an economy, a society burdened by huge debts, then a dose of inflation, either short and sharp or steady and moderate, may be precisely a way of achieving a rebalancing, because what it amounts to is basically a kind of tax, a kind of hidden, silent tax. And many serious economists, and I would support this position, thought before the crisis that we should really be aiming not for a symmetrical 2% target, but just flat out for a 4% inflation target, and that would actually be healthy. Certainly, it would be far better than the opposite, which is risking lowflation or even sliding into deflation when the tables are turned and it's the creditors who gain at the expense of folks who've borrowed money to invest in their businesses and educating their kids and so on, which is generally a recipe for recession and depression. Okay, I'm glad I asked that embarrassingly basic question, but we have to leave it there for now. We will be right back. Hi, this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents. And I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. 
What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Welcome back to ones and twos. Okay, so our next data point is from beyond the headlines. The number is four. That's the number of dedicated trains that the Italian pasta company Barilla now operates over the Alps every week from Parma in the north of Italy to the German city of Ulm. Every one of those trains you just heard going over the Alps carries close to 500 tons of pasta, 60 tons of sauce, all of that sloshing over the mountains in those trains. It's not exactly the most appetizing thought, but that's how spaghetti and linguine and marinara gets from Italy and its factories to German plates. So not so long ago, in 2020, it was two trains per week. But apparently pasta has become really popular in the pandemic. Adam, do you want to hazard any guesses why that is? Yeah, I mean, like, I think uh, come the crisis, come come the, the universal desire for comfort food. You know, I mean, after all, practically practically every culture in the world has got some kind of pasta variant. Uh, and Barilla, they're just huge. They're the largest pasta company in the world. They ship staggering quantities of the stuff all around Europe and to the wider world. Uh, one important thing to say, though, Cameron, is that this stuff doesn't slosh over the mountains. Oh, well, uh, come on, the, give me the, the, the liberty <laughs> of the image. It's uh... The cool thing about it is it goes through the mountains. So ah. Switzerland is really the, the crossroads of Europe. And what they struggle with is an absolutely endless, unceasing day and night convoys of thousands and thousands of trucks driving through their country, polluting, killing pedestrians, wildlife. I mean, the roads in Switzerland at, at peak season are just absolutely hellish. So what they've done you know, with typical Swiss ingenuity is they've burrowed these enormously expensive, extremely high tech tunnels through the Alps. And that's what the trains run on. That's really the Barilla boast, that the pasta trains are going to save 5,000 truck trips per annum. It's going to take 6,000 tonnes of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So it's win-win-win, it's right? It's a marketing shtick, it's a logistics win, and it's an environmental win, and it saves the poor old Swiss from being swamped by trucks. Okay, so I, I'll admit I was thinking of something more dramatic, like uh, uh, the trains crossing the Alps, like Napoleon crossing the Alps. Yeah, or like Hannibal's elephants or something. No, no, the tunnel, the tunnels are totally amazing, and we should we should definitely do a segment about these awesome feats of uh, 
engineering. They had these rotational diggers that plow their way through the Alps and with steered by a super high precision GPS. So you tunnel from two sides and they burrow towards each other, obviously in the dark, through the granite. And they meet with like centimeter tolerance in the middle of the mountains. And then I think they abandon the machines forever lost inside the mountains. It's mind-blowing stuff. Okay, I'm going to make a note of that. I think we can do that as a segment uh, uh, some point soon. But 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 for now, uh, these trains, the pasta trains, they're being operated by this pasta company, as you're describing. I, I just can't help but contrast that investment in German train logistics from an Italian company with all the headaches we've been hearing about in Britain recently. I mean, sometimes it seems like they're having trouble getting food across their borders from Europe. Uh, We were even hearing about seafood rotting in ports. They have supermarket shelves empty in Northern Ireland. I mean, are these pasta trains in Europe, are they a window into what exactly the European Union is? Yeah, this is this is the secret source. Oh no, that's that, uh, yeah. that's <laughs> it's uh, it's the sort of trade that's absolutely the key to what Europe is. I mean, you know, these paths across the Alps. I mean, they literally are trodden for centuries. We can, in fact, find the dung we think of Hannibal's elephants uh, deposited on the on the approaches. Um, they're the routes which have been crossed by great armies in the past, always by traders. And so what we're seeing is like this sort of typical European blend of the latest in engineering and just-in-time logistics with truly ancient uh, trade routes. Uh, Barilla has the world's largest pasta factory just outside the town of Parma, and they also have a huge source factory there. And the whole thing is fed by Durham wheat, which is delivered to the you know ancient, ancient port city of Ravenna, one of the capitals of the Roman Empire in its declining stages. So very old trade routes, souped up, perfected, optimized for the 21st century. So I wonder if in a longer historical sweep, the pasta trains also tell us something about how the EU single market affects European culture. Uh, Germany has traditional cheap food of its own, right? I mean, sausages and the like. I'm guessing the fact that pasta sales have been booming for years in Germany. I mean, that has at least in part something to do with the indirect effects of the single market, right? I mean, starting with decades of northward immigration from Italy. Yeah, I mean, let's not not German cuisine. They have pasta too. I mean, so they've got egg noodles, I, I know. they've got spätzle, yeah. you know, which are great with Swiss cheese and onions. And then I, they've <laughs> even got their own type of stuffed pasta, which, believe it or not, are called maultaschen, which literally translates as like mouth pockets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That may, um, that may make it less appetizing. Let's stick with yeah, maultaschen. Like yeah. Very good. Fat, fat, fat sort of uh, ravioli with spinach and, and uh, mystery meat. <laughs> Um, But yeah, European food culture has definitely become more unified over the last half century. Uh, If Americans like Julia Childs brought French food to the US, there's very similar processes in Europe as well. In Britain, it was a woman called Elizabeth David, whose cookbooks people may know from the Mediterranean. She basically introduced fresh garlic to the Brits. If you actually watch uh, Len Dayton's films, the ones with Michael Caine from the 1960s show a working class Brit learning to cook fancy European food. It's really kind of touching to watch. And, and the, war, the wars stirred things up. You, you get a rash of uh, Italian cafes all over Northern Europe after World War II. And many of them are Italian prisoners of war. It was still very much happening in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up in, in West Germany. I vividly remember the shock of first trying pesto, like green and silky and kind of oozier than you can possibly imagine, all that olive oil and dried tortellini, which I remember stealing from some sort of uh, highway Italian restaurant. 
yeah, it's a, it's a story of guilty pleasures accumulating over time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm guessing one reason that Germans might prefer the spaghetti and the tortellini to, 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 to their local pasta is that when, 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 when they talk about it, they hear the word mouth pocket, as you were just, just, just talking about. So, you know, I guess, I guess I would prefer to go with the pesto and the, and the tortellini. But um, one last thing about the pasta trains. I, I was saying that I was reading all this PR material from Barilla. And to go back to the thing you mentioned at the outset, I mean, the, the company emphasizes everywhere that this train service in Germany is not just about serving a foreign market. It's, it's also a climate change measure. I mean, they emit less carbon than the trucks they used to use. But I mean, how seriously should we be taking this? Is this just like PR greenwashing, so to speak? There's an element of that for sure. I mean, this is a profit-making company. But, but it's also significant, isn't it, that the context makes this worthwhile, right? That this is a kind of PR that actually works. I mean, they are selling you your pasta and tomato sauce, like, you know, everyday evening family food as a contribution to tackling the climate crisis. It's quite something, really. There's a real point here because Europe is, you know, a champion of climate policy. And, and one of its boasts is that its CO2 emissions, its carbon dioxide emissions have been actually going down. But the one sector that has bucked that trend where emissions have gone up over recent decades is transport. Um, in fact, they've gone up by a third since 1990, which is really bad news. If you've ever had the chance to visit, you'll know the Europeans are actually you know, absolutely addicted to cheap, short distance flying. Uh, but road transport and trucking are also major contributors here. Altogether, transport accounts for about 29% of European emissions. And of that, trucks and buses are about 5%. So anything that moves past the shipments from the road where you're burning diesel to rail, when you can use electricity, and the electricity then can, of course, be generated from renewables, wind or solar, or in the case of Switzerland, it would be hydroelectric. Any of that's a win. And we need more and more stories like this. Okay, you heard it here first. Pasta trains are not only an engine of a world historical project, in the form of the EU single market, but they're also a way of saving the planet. Okay, that does it for another episode of Ones and Twos. I'm Cameron Abadi. And I'm Adam Twos. Our podcast is a production of Foreign Policy. Our show is written by me and Adam. It's edited by Laura rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Dan Efron is the executive editor for podcasts at FP. We're a few weeks into this. We've been getting great responses from folks online. Keep it coming. You can write to us through our email address. That's podcasts at foreignpolicy.com. Or try us through our Twitter feed. That's at ones and twos pod. As always, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or your favorite podcast app. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. 
everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.